Hello, and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. I'm the president of a production company in New York City called Meeting House Productions. And in my spare time, I watch a lot of movies from the 70s and the 80s. I read a lot about the making of movies and TV shows from my childhood. And occasionally, I hop on this microphone and I share the fruits of that labor with you out there in the listening audience. We've been doing it about three years. We've got 127 episodes. If you're new to the podcast, you can check out episode 125, which is called, if you're new to the podcast, start here. It's basically a treasure map to all the various areas, the pockets, the corners, the nooks and the crannies of the full cast and crew podcast experience. Another little bonus that I might have for you, if you're interested in doing your own podcast, I recorded a how-to pod, which is not published wherever you get podcasts. It's available only via request, but there's no charge. There's no cost. You don't have to sign up for anything. Uh, you just have to shoot me an email or ask for it on social media. Look for the full cast and crew Instagram account to get in touch. And I will send it to you. It's about an hour and a half long. It tells you a lot of the things you might want to know or think about in launching your own podcast, which I encourage you to do. Also, check out some of our recent episodes. My most recent episode was about the HBO miniseries directed by Ethan Hawke called The Last Movie Stars. I found that interesting. And coming up, by the time you're listening to this, I will have recorded an episode with multiple repeat guests on the pod, Richard Brown, about the fantastic 1970s children run amok film, Over the Edge, starring Matt Dillon and others. A wonderful, amazing movie that it has been so fun to jump into. So I'll be sharing that with you in the weeks to come. And today I just wanted to do a quick episode because I had that rarest of occasions the other night, last night, when I discovered a movie from the 70s in the sweet spot of the podcast that I hadn't seen before or even heard of before. And unlike most of the times that occurs, this film turned out to not only be good, but to actually be kind of great-ish, if I dare say so. The film is called Cops and Robbers. It's a 1973 film directed by Aram Avakian, based on a screenplay by Donald E. Westlake, who, in another one of my passions, is a very prolific, or I should say was a very prolific, comedy crime novel writer. Uh, carved out his own territory with a couple incredibly key characters. Talk a little bit more about Donald E. Westlake in a bit. But the film stars Cliff Gorman and Joseph Bologna as two New York City police officers who begin to wonder if they could turn to crime and fund an early retirement and get out of the rat race. So very much in that kind of early 70s, post 60s, still the 60s, sort of why are we in service to this institution? Uh, why don't we take advantage of the fact that we can do whatever we want? We have badges, we have guns, and the caper goes on from there. And I heard about this film, and I want to be, be careful to give credit here where credit is due, because I often talk on the pod about the both the evils of the podcast industrial complex, which is 
you know, all those super well-funded podcasts by celebrities who suck up all the attention uh, from your everyday run-of-the-mill folks like myself who try to share the fruits of our experiences here with actual listeners without bombarding you with ads or commercials or other sort of product reads or all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I also refer to what I call the uh, the Instagram, the full cast and crew Instagram mutual uh, support or appreciation society of which uh, I want to get it right at Dom casual discos is an account I had not previously heard of, but I came across in my feed because it, it fed me a, <laughs> the following post rejoice as the time is finally upon us. Spinel week 2022 is here. The fourth annual Spinel week. What is Spinel Week? The late Joe Spinell was perhaps the last of his kind, a talented, creative actor who looked like a real person, one whose personal traits, flaws, and mannerisms he used to deepen his performances. Call him a character actor because he truly had real-life character and employed it for the almost 20 years he graced film and television, working from his early 70s start with Coppola to David A. Pryor, who directed his final scenes in 1989, a week before he died at age 52. For the first week of August, please join us and post any media of Joe with the hashtag Spinell Week. Come on, man, will ya? So I saw that post fed to me through the algorithm, and instantly I thought, this, this account, Dom Casual Discos, uh, we are simpatico. As I leafed through this feed, I saw all sorts of things that I'm interested in. Music, uh, movies, things from the 70s, record labels, character actors, like just basically a lot of the stuff that I'm into. So I followed directions and I posted a photo on the full cast and crew Instagram feed of Joe Spinell in one of my favorite scenes from The Godfather. And in doing so, I then went a little bit down the Joe Spinell rabbit hole, as I'm often want to do. And that's how I found Cops and Robbers, because he has a very small but critical supporting role in Cops and Robbers. Going to talk a little bit more about Joe Spinell in a second. I don't want to turn this into a full Spinell appreciation, although we're going to do plenty of that. So anyway, Cops and Robbers, as I'm watching it, you know, if you're like me, there's just something about films from this era shot in New York City that have that gritty appeal. They have that filmic uh, grain to the filmmaking, real locations. This is a real New York film that uses New York well. It doesn't use New York in a cinematic way or a, a phantasmagorical way or, you know, the, the, the New York City of uh, a Woody Allen film, per se, it's got a real feel for the grit and the grime and the attitude of New York, and it gets it right. You know, when, when films strive for that and they sort of get it wrong, it always hits such a false note for people who live in New York who understand that the subtlety of the New York attitude is, is multifaceted and multilingual and is expressed in a certain awareness of what's right and what's wrong in any given situation, on the street, on the sidewalk, in public. However you are, wherever you are, New Yorkers have a shared experience that's very unique and very different from the shared experience of other major cities. And films often get that wrong, but Cops and Robbers kind of gets that right in a 1973 way. So at first, I was put off, as I came to learn many people were, uh, by the silly poster 
for this film, which is sort of, uh, the poster says, they make $215.39 a week as cops and $10 million in one day as robbers. How did they get away with it? Cops and robbers. Hey, how did they get away with it? I mean, you couldn't come up with a more hackneyed, corny, terrible poster, which also has nothing to do with the actual film, because in the poster, the Joe Bologna character is holding a pile of stacks of money. Well, the actual robbery in the film doesn't involve money at all. It involves bearer bonds. So I saw the poster and I thought this is going to be one of those things. There's other films like this of the era that I sort of that have all of the elements of things you think you're going to be interested in. Um, But once you kind of investigate them, they sort of fall short through usually pretty bad scripts or poor direction and acting, Um, you know, adaptations of books that you might love. Uh, just that don't come off well as films. And of course, so many films uh, post French connection, you know, tried for this, this New York cop thing and either fell short or, or delivered. So it just kind of depends on what you're seeing and, and how they do it. But so at first you kind of think, oh, this is going to be another one of those, you know, films that sort of falls short in its attempt to uh, capture this kind of this kind of New York New York vibe, but what caught my eye was that it was based uh, that it was a screenplay by Donald E. Westlake, and that Westlake subsequently expanded this into a novel. Now, Donald E. Westlake is is sort of um, for for fans of crime fiction. I mean, he's he's a touchstone figure. He had two really well-known franchises, which were completely different from each other. One was a very kind of hard-boiled, noir, pared-down character named Parker, which he wrote under his pen name Richard Stark, the Parker novels. Some of them are just absolute iconic classics of crime fiction. And the Parker character has been turned into innumerable movies and TV shows, some that would surprise you that are based on on these novels. And the other, in a more humorous kind of uh, comedy uh, series, is the character Dortmunder. Uh, you may know Dortmunder from a Robert Redford film called The Hot Rock, which I think is maybe one of his better known, uh, one of the better known films that were created out of Donald E. Westlake properties, but some other ones that you may have been familiar with are the the film Point Blank, which stars Lee Marvin. A lot of a lot of current noir fans are obsessed with this movie. Uh, that's based on a Westlake novel. Um, the Split, The Hot Rock, Bank Shot, Slayground with Peter Coyote, um, Contemporary, uh, Payback with Mel Gibson as the Parker character, although they call him Porter. Martin Lawrence in 2001, What's the Worst That Could Happen? He's playing the Dortmunder character, but the name has changed to Kevin Caffery. Uh, On and on and on. I mean, these have been just done so many times. Now, Westlake is kind of like um, trying to describe him for people who don't read crime fiction. But if you've liked films like 
uh, Out of Sight, for example, uh, Get Shorty. These are films based on the works of Elmore Leonard, who's another crime novelist contemporary of Donald E. Westlake, who specializes in really great characterization, really funny dialogue and funny scenarios uh, done quite well. And Donald E. Westlake is kind of known for, I guess, the intricacy of his plotting. And that is on display in the film Cops and Robbers, which is not a wacky comedy at all. It's also not a realistic kind of gritty uh, cop film. It's kind of in its own very specific space, which is, I think, why I really appreciate it. And I think why it's worth your time, because, you know, it's not just another hard boiled French connection ripoff. It's not it's not also just trying to do uh, implausible characters. Uh, The two main actors are so obviously great with Cliff Gorman and Joseph Bologna, both very talented actors of the stage and the screen. And they convey, you know, these New York City cops who live out in Long Island in a manner that uh, is very realistic, but it is comedic. Yet the actors kind of disappear in the roles, even as you feel the essential qualities of their their personalities and the things that you would like about them if you met them. Uh, and I did actually have the opportunity to meet Cliff Gorman. I'll tell you that story in a second. That kind of shines through as well. And as I started to watch the film, you know, I love the experience. And I've talked about this on the pod recently, too. One of my favorite experiences is when you find a movie like this that's in this era that you haven't seen or you haven't heard of. And you start to watch it. And oftentimes, if it's going to be really good, you can just tell right away. There's something about the way the credit sequences unfold. There's something about the very first images that you see the first dialogue that you hear and the way that's all portrayed. This is exactly one of those movies. I knew I was in good hands and I started getting curious about who directed this movie because it was obviously done with great skill and care. And it was a cut above sort of just a slap together comedy. And it carved out some unique territory in its attitude, which really reminded me of some other films from much more recent times that I think owe a lot to this movie. And I posted on Facebook last night after watching it saying that I'd looked up a little bit about the director. And wouldn't you know, Aram Avakian ties right into the full cast and crew cinematic universe, which we'll talk about in a second. But the film's tone, I think, and some of the some of the scenes are directly influential to films like Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese. Um, certainly out of sight. A lot of the Soderbergh kind of crime films owe a lot to this this attitude. Now, of course, Out of Sight is an Elmore Leonard novel, so some of the tone is there. But I I found out that Soderbergh is a big fan of some of Aram Avakian's other films and certainly no doubt has seen this and appreciated it. So that was kind of how I started getting into it. And Talking about Aram Avakian as a director, uh, once I started looking into him, I was like, wow, this this is like uh, another thing that I love. Because in liking this film, you start to say, wow, who's this director? And then you look into the director's life and you go down the IMDb rabbit hole and you find other films that you've seen, films that you want to see. And just the story of an interesting director who intersects with the podcast in the following fashion. In my episode on The Godfather, 
which was called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, which is based on Mark Seal's very, very good book, uh, which is called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, The Epic Story of the Making of the Godfather. Episode 104 of the Full Cast and Crew podcast is my interview with Mark Seal. And I think that book is a very good and, and fairly definitive uh, book about the making of the film that debunks a lot of the, the myth that has risen up over the making of this film. And it also tells you some new interesting things about the making of the film. And one of the things it gets into is the idea that, you know, Mario Puzo's The Godfather was a pulp novel. It was not a literary novel. It was not a it was not a it was a novel everyone was reading at the time, but it was not like Tom Wolfe. It was not, you know, if it was discussed in higher society, it was discussed because people felt they were slumming by reading such a prurient, sex-filled, violence-filled uh, novel. But it wasn't it wasn't primo stuff. And in the making of the film, no one really at Paramount or even the actors themselves really knew that they were making what would become the Godfather in the titanic way that it that it just dwarfs so many other films. They didn't know that. In their own time, in their own words, they admit they thought they were just making a B picture, right? And Marlon Brando was not employable. So having Marlon Brando in the film almost meant that it wasn't a top flight production because no studio would work with Marlon Brando at that time. And Coppola was not a proven bankable director who anyone really wanted, per se, on the film. And apparently, during the initial filming of The Godfather, the first film, Avakian uh, was brought on to edit the movie. And I think it's fair to say from all the different places that I've read. I haven't read this in just one place, so I'm not sort of gossiping about this. I've read it in enough places to think that there's enough smoke there that basically, you know, there's been a lot of stories about uh, the studio watching the dailies, which are, you know, the prints of the film that's been shot on a given day that get developed and then they get run for studio and other executives. And of course, you're watching a work in progress and you can't really necessarily judge what you're seeing on screen. But just at the same time, sometimes things jump off the screen and, and executives go, wow, we're catching lightning in a bottle here. That guy's amazing. That performance is amazing. Well, the studio was not amazed at the dailies. And as often happens with people who have their own agendas, it sounds like a bit of a uh, a putsch was, was hatched. And a lot of people say that Aram Avakian was the leader of this attempted sabotaging of Francis Ford Coppola as the director and whether there was bad mouthing going on, uh, whether there were actual problems in terms of Francis's approach that, you know, perhaps the Godfather highlighted what would become much more problematic in something like, um, his Vietnam war film, which is another episode of the podcast you can look at, but, However, or whatever was going on, there were a lot of studio concerns. And apparently Aram Avakian was allegedly feeding into that and angling to replace Coppola as the director of the film. At the same time as he's editing the film and ostensibly Coppola's friend, who having worked on films with Coppola going back to the early 60s, uh, he edited Coppola's film, You're a Big Boy Now, in 1966. So they're friends, they're colleagues, they've come up together in the business. 
But Avakian is a, is a more experienced director at the time. And Paramount sent, you know, an executioner uh, in Jack Ballard, who was a uh, studio executive who's supposed to go to the set and kind of see what's going on and report back. And I think uh, people were reporting back to the legend Robert Evans saying, yeah, it's kind of a mess. You should probably replace him. But Evans backed Coppola and actually Avakian was the one who was fired and Coppola cleaned house and was able to fend off this attempt at taking over the Godfather. And he would go on to finish the film. And of course the rest is history. Now, because that happened in 1971, when they're filming The Godfather in 1972, Avakian is available to direct Cops and Robbers in 1973, which he does. And that's how we have this movie. So Aram Avakian goes back in uh, the film to, uh, actually goes back in television to the kind of the mid-50s. Uh, he was an editor on the Edward R. Murrow program, See It Now, and in the late 50s, he co-directed what's considered the first feature-length music documentary, or rather the fe first feature-length documentary of a music festival, you know, sort of something like a Woodstock. Well, he directed and edited a film called Jazz on a Summer's Day, which is a 1959 film about the... Uh, Newport Jazz Festival in Rhode Island. And it features period performance footage from 1959 of a who's who of the jazz uh, aristocracy of the time from Thelonious Monk, Jerry Mulligan, Eric Dolphy, Louis Armstrong, Joe Jones, um, Mahalia Jackson, all kinds of all kinds of just legendary things. So that, that was a big deal. That was sort of a new thing in film at the time. And that was directed and edited by Aram Avakian, also known as Al. He also directed some other interesting films. Um, the Miracle Worker, he worked on as an editor. Mickey One, uh, which is a, I think, a strange Warren Beatty film. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and he directed a film called End of the Road, which I haven't seen, but which I want to see. That's the film that Soderbergh was obsessed with and did, a, did a, apparently a, a documentary about it on a DVD release. And this was a, a film that was rated X at its time because it had a very realistic treatment of the issue of abortion. And um, that sounds like an interesting film, which was based on a screenplay by Terry Southern. Anyway, so that's a little bit about Avakian, who became a teacher in the, in the later 80s. And I don't know whether he ever made up that, that relationship with Francis Ford Coppola, but but anyway, he is a very, very capable director and turned in a great, great performance as a director on this really worthy 1970s film, Cops and Robbers. Talked a little bit about Donald Westlake. That's Aaron Mavakian. Uh, we'll talk a little about the cast. So Cliff, Rock, Cliff Gorman and Joseph Bologna, as I said. <clears throat> but what's particularly great about this film is in little bit parts all through this film, there are just kind of what we what we always call that guy. <laughs> um, you know, those character actors who you have seen time and time again, maybe you don't always know their name, but you definitely know their face and you know their performances. So a few of them in this film are 
John P. Ryan, uh, who is, uh, they say on Wikipedia he's best known as Warden Rankin in the 1985 film Runaway Train. I, I don't know that film. John Voight, Eric Roberts. Um, he's best known to me as the guy who is leading the astronaut program in the right stuff. He has kind of a a brilliant way of seeming two-faced in all of his work. So he's really good and is often used as kind of the oily bad guy in whatever he's doing. And in the right stuff, if you think about the head of the program who has his own agenda beyond trying to sort of, you know, run the program and supposedly be there to support his astronauts, he also has his own agenda. And that's kind of where you use this John P. Ryan thing. So he's used to great effect. Dolph Sweet is used to great effect. It's funny seeing Dolph Sweet in a movie from the 70s and you realize kind of how much of that he did for ever and ever in broad, on Broadway and in TV and in movies. And it's funny to think that Dolph Sweet eventually hit the home run uh, with the sitcom Give Me a Break, starring Nell Carter, which he was able to, I think, be on for five seasons or something until he died in 1985. So Dolph Sweet is just a great and specific kind of screen character. Uh, others that you'll recognize but not know their names, Shepard Strudwick plays Mr. Eastpool, who's kind of the proprietor of the Wall Street firm where the two cops go to steal. Um, on and on and on. You're going to see a lot of interesting faces in here. You're going to go, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. And one of them, as I said, is Joe Spinell. Now, he's who started this whole thing because I saw that post and Joe Spinell, if you know Joe Spinell, uh, you probably know him as Willie Chichi from The Godfather. Again, it all goes back to The Godfather, right? <clears throat> so you remember this scene. I'm going to start playing you a little of this. That's right. But in actuality, you remember the Corleone crime organization. Uh, no, we call it the Corleone family, Senator. We call it the family. So you, you remember the scene where he's being interviewed by the, the congressional committee. Like everybody else, I, I was a soldier. What is that? A button, you know, Senator. Come on. No, I don't know. Tell me. Well, when the boss says push a button on a guy, I push a button. See, Senator? Mr. Quested. <laughs> I always love Mr. Quested. Right. Which is like, I've always looked this up in The Godfather. I think that means that you're being questioned by the congressional subcommittee investigating La Cosa Nostra. Mr. Quested. You are the you are being quested because his name is is Willie Chichi. So he's not mispronouncing his last name. I think that's sort of like a formal senatorial panel term. Directly from Michael Corleone. No, uh, I never talked to him. All right, Mr. Chichi. Could you amplify your answer a bit, please? Do what? Could you he doesn't know what amplify means, which is just a great Joe Spinell moment. Uh, was there always a buffer involved? There's someone in between you and your possible superiors who gave the actual order. Right, yeah, buffer. The family had a lot of buffers. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this is Joe Spinell in a nutshell. As the Instagram account that I quoted so aptly put it, he looks like a real person. He's got this pockmarked face. He looks like 
going to say he looks like a dangerous character, but he definitely looks like a character. And he exudes this, this strange mix of bonhomie, comedy, menace, and uniqueness that just of all the millions of people that have appeared in films and of all the bit part players, you know, it's amazing to think of somebody like Joe Spinell who didn't really have this long, this long career. I think the Instagram account pointed out that he had done something like only 20 films from maybe the 19 early seventies to 1989, but all memorable. And, um, all essential. Like, can you imagine The Godfather without that little moment in front of the Senate when Willie Chichi is testifying in uh, in that scene? Like, it's so essential, right? He's also in Taxi Driver in such a great little scene. It's like not one of the big showy scenes that we think about when we think about Taxi Driver, but it was really fun to watch this scene, which is where Travis shows up at the cab stand and tries to get hired as a taxi driver. And guess who the guy is who's doing the hiring? How do you answer that? That's Joe Spinell. So what do you want to hack for, Bickle? I can't sleep nights. This porn up there just for that. Yeah, I know. I tried that. So what do you do now? No, ride around nights mostly. Subways. Buses, figure, you know, I'm gonna do that, I might as well get paid for it. Wanna wake up town night, South Bronx, Harlem? I work anytime, anywhere. We work Jewish holidays? Anytime, anywhere. All right, let me see your shelf's license. It's just such a different use of Joe Spinell, but also such a critical one because he's a little off, but he's also the authority figure. Shops. You don't talk with guys like you coming in and break my chops all the time. If you're gonna break my chops, you can take it on the arches right now, you understand? Sorry, sir, I didn't mean that. He's just so committed. Physical. Clean. Age. 26. Education. Well, some, I... Like, the challenge of age. Like, he makes age. Just the question, age. How old are you? He makes that sound... Military record. <laughs> Honorable discharge. And then look at this turn right here. May 1973. Were you in the Army? Marines. I was in the Marines, too. He, he leans back in his chair. I was in the Marines too. Now he's now there. Now Travis has broken through. Now there is uh, uh, a connection between these two where before there was just antagonism. And again, it's a throwaway small role that any number of actors could have done, but he just brings something to it that no other character actor really had. He also played the loan shark in Rocky. He was in the bonkers, amazing film uh, Sorcerer that Friedkin did in 77. He was in uh, the bonkers Italian space film Star Crash with Hasselhoff and Christopher Plummer and Marjo Gortner. <laughs> He was in Brubaker. He was in Melvin and Howard. He was in Nighthawks. He was in Night Shift. He was in Losing It. He was in The Pickup Artist. 
he was in married to the mob uh and he i think he wrote and directed oh no he directed one i think didn't he direct no i guess he didn't direct uh maniac i thought he directed this crazy ass film i guess it was based on a screenplay that he wrote uh this is i haven't seen this film but a lot of people talk about this uh it's been it's i think it's kind of one of his only starring roles he plays an italian american serial killer who murders and scalps young women and it's like a super low budget exploitation film and it has a cult following i haven't seen it but it's apparently just batshit crazy um in Joe Spinell's own Wikipedia page, <laughs> it says, which I always think is kind of funny. Uh, where does it say it? Oh, yeah, it says, he was known to heavily abuse drugs and alcohol intermittently throughout his career, especially during periods of unemployment. Well, yeah, I mean, it's called being an actor. Um, he died in a crazy way, a sad sounding way, where apparently in Queens in 89, he cut himself on his shower stall, uh, cut himself on his head after he slipped in the tub. And again, maybe this is when he was he was drinking or using drugs, I don't know. But he fell asleep uh, and he had hemophilia, so he bled to death. And he was found by a friend. So Joe Spinell is just this guy who has something. There should be a Spinell documentary Maybe there is. I, I haven't really looked extensively. I hope there's a good one. He deserves one. There's something about him that tells us something about Hollywood and something about the craft of acting and something about these misfits and reprobates who find their way to this industry and play such an important part in it in a supporting way, not a leading way, but in a supporting way. And the ability to fill those small roles in films like The Godfather or Taxi Driver but to still imbue them with something really unique and specific, uh, it's great. And, and I think that's why a lot of film geeks and film accounts on Instagram are obsessed with Joe Spinell. And I count myself among them. So going down the Joe Spinell sort of uh, <laughs> um, wormhole is, is always worthy. I'm not an expert by any means. I think other of these accounts that I mentioned know a lot more about him, but I, I, I would like to investigate this a little bit more. Maybe there's something we can do uh, to appropriately discuss Joe Spinell and all of his roles in a further episode. I also want to mention about John P. Ryan, who I talked about a minute before. I didn't find anyone in the Columbo Cinematic Universe, but I, John P. Ryan is in the Rockford Cinematic Universe. He, he was in a Rockford Files episode, so I wanted to mention that too. Now... Uh, Cliff Gorman, and I, I did have a brief and funny uh, story about Cliff Gorman, which I'll tell here. It may, it may not resonate with anybody, but it's always something that my friend Peter Johansson and I have referenced and talked about. In my first job working in television in 1995, it was at a news magazine called Day and Date, which was filmed at the CBS uh, broadcast facility on West 57th Street, very storied building. And right across the street, from West 57th Street, right across the street from our offices at Day and Date, were several bars where pretty much everyone from CBS, from the local CBS affiliate workers and on-air anchors to Dan Rather, Andy Rooney, people who were employed at the network, for a few hours after work every day, every day, Monday through Friday, 
this bar, Kennedy's, was mobbed with CBS employees. And so we would always go there and just engage in the banter of fantastic work colleagues. This was a really close-knit show. Uh, It was so exciting to work on a real TV show. I was just a production assistant. I was making $250 a week. And uh, being befriended by people who were a bit older, like Peter, who was a really experienced TV producer, who was funny and witty and had so many great pop culture references. And we used to invent so many games to pass the time. Uh, And we enjoyed hoisting pints at Kennedy's and Armstrong's and the other watering holes of the post-CBS workday. Well, in addition to the CBS people, there were some Broadway and actor people who hung out at this bar. And two of them were Roscoe Lee Brown and Cliff Gorman. And Cliff Gorman used to sit at the, I can see him right now. He's sitting at the far left side if you're facing the bar. And he would always sit under a picture of himself on Broadway in, I think, The Boys in the Band, which is, I think, one of the one of the stage roles that he was most well-known for, uh, maybe the off-Broadway version of that. So, and he, but (laughs) I don't remember how this happened. I certainly didn't know Cliff Gorman at the time. I was not that much of a film fan. He didn't really have a very extensive uh, film career, although he was in another full cast and crew cinematic universe moment. Um, He played kind of a, I guess he he had played uh, Lenny Bruce in or on an off Broadway production, but was was not cast to play Lenny Bruce when they did the film Lenny. Of course, Dustin Hoffman ended up doing it, but he did kind of a take on Lenny in All That Jazz, which is just an absolutely stunningly brilliant Bob Fosse film. Chris and I did a very long and in depth episode about it. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite favorite episodes. I'm obsessed with this film, Fosse time editing and cutting. Um, the musical numbers are forever. It's it's a brilliant look at the creative process. And Cliff Gorman does a little, a little bit within there about uh, as sort of a Lenny Bruce-esque comic. So anyway, I didn't have any idea who, um, who Cliff Gorman was. I certainly knew who... Roscoe Lee Brown was because that voice, right? I should I should find and play you a little bit of this voice because uh, Roscoe Lee Brown had the most amazing. Listen to this voice. And then I returned in the second half because they were not going to have this the scene with Capernia. I returned in the second half. It's Pindarus. I'm dying to. No, I shan't. Can I do it for you, my my audition for this? Oh, of course. I mean, oh, Roscoe Lee Brown, like just one of the great actors, one of the great hams, uh, just an institution, and this voice, um, so good. <laughs> I mean, just like had been in everything. Uh, I want to say at the time, probably known for being on the Cosby show. I think he did a run on the Cosby show for a while, which was probably just before I came to New York to work on this show. 
but you know, had a career for 60 years, theater, film, television, voiceover work, uh, just an amazing, interesting person. And also someone who would hang out at this bar who you could totally approach and talk to and who was incredibly welcoming and kind and sounded exactly like that in real life. And, uh, I guess in my mind, it was the same night that Roscoe Lee Brown and Cliff Gorman were together at the bar and Peter and I probably in our cups were engaging them in conversation and they were super friendly. And Cliff Gorman was kind of getting out a kick out of the fact that I sort of was like noticing him and then noticing that he's sitting below a picture of him in a much younger guise uh, in a play on Broadway. And of course, I'm just being so uh, clueless and being like, oh, that's you, Uh, you know, poor guy, like. Here's a guy who's got a completely legitimate film, television, stage resume, and this idiotic, you know, 24-year-old really has no idea at the time who he is. Uh, But of course, I knew who Roscoe Lee Brown was, and uh, that was a big kick out of hanging out at those bars at that time. Sadly, both have passed on, but uh, always have a sweet spot for Cliff Gorman and wish that I could have seen him. Later in life, when I knew more about him and knew more to appreciate him as an actor, which he's really kind of the star of Cops and Robbers, like Joe Bologna is is as much a part of things as he is. But it's really Cliff Gorman's character that we experience most of the events through. And so many of the scenes remind me of scenes in Goodfellas, like the scene in Pauly's backyard in Goodfellas, where he tells Ray Liotta's character, now I got to turn my back on you, slaps him in the face, like the the Italian-American outer borough culture of backyard barbecuing and entertaining is so iconically portrayed in Cops and Robbers. You're going to see it again in Goodfellas and in other films where they do things like that. So it's got a great plot. It always is surprising. Uh, It's not a monumental movie, but it's an incredibly worthwhile movie. And I think if you seek it out, you're going to enjoy, as I did, experiencing the wit and the Um, the attitude that the film unfolds with and some great character actor performances, a great score uh, by Michel Legrand. And that same account that I was citing before, the At Disco's account told me that you can hear Joe Spinell. It's Joe Spinell's voice that's used in the theme song to Cops and Robbers, which is a very kind of period song spoken spoken sort of theme song that's that apparently has Joe Spinell's voice in it. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I really dug this film and I think you will too if you like the podcast. So check it out. And like I said, I'll be back next week with Rick Brown talking about Over the Edge. Thank you as ever so much for listening to the podcast. I can't tell you how much it means. Uh, We're actually successful. I've been doing research into what it means to be successful as a podcaster. And guess what? It's just all about you, however you define success. Most podcasts don't get any listeners. We're lucky to get a good amount of listeners for what this podcast is, and that's because of you. I thank you very much. I'll be back next week. And that's it for this episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast.